you, Stephen. All right, take your Bibles. Turn over to Revelation. Soon, Mark will, um, we have discussed this, Mark is going to begin to preach on Sunday nights. Uh, and in the process, when that happens, um, I better be sure that by that time you can be praying for me that my messages are contained to one service. Otherwise, we're going to have some major problems. Uh, now, y'all be praying for me. Um, what I found in all of these is that I have just a little too much to finish in the morning service, and right now it's working out okay. But uh, thankfully, Mark is going to be beginning to, what, two more weeks, give or take, something like that. Uh, is going to start teaching on Sunday nights in Daniel. So we're going to be going through the book of Daniel. Really looking forward to that, right? And uh, uh, Ryan is going to take over Sunday morning and leave off right where Mark left off, basically, in numbers. So we're looking forward to that and encouraged by that. Um, now, on top of that, that will free up your pastor to maybe do a little bit more of the evangelistic side and, and do some of the things like more involved at USF and um, more counseling and things like that. So looking forward to that and y'all be praying for that and very blessed that we have some men in our church that love the word of God and are great at teaching the word of God and uh, it's going to be exciting. All right, all that said, we need to finish Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 dealing with the church in Ephesus. Again, after Christ's revelation of himself to John, Christ begins to address each of the churches through their representative messengers, as we saw this morning. We saw this morning that the background of the church included the city of Ephesus. The church was in a large, corrupt city in the area called Asia. When we think of Asia, by the way, just a side note, most of us think Asia, we think what? The Orient, out that way, right? Uh, in fact, Asia during the Roman Empire and during that time was modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey is where this is, where Ephesus is today. Um, the church was a center, as mentioned, of pagan worship of the fertility goddess Artemis. Uh, it was mentioned again also this morning that Diana. Uh, some discussed that and said that that Roman god was a little bit, they had heard something different. Well, like I mentioned to um, Omar's daughter when she brought this up, what happened often is goddesses and gods from a culture, when they married other cultures together, they would change. <laughs> so one god would flex into another. That's why Artemis became synonymous with Diana, another or Diane, uh, either way you want to say that, the goddess. So the, the whole idea is, is it was the fertility goddess Artemis, um, Artemis rather. The church had been started and maintained by some big guns, as we mentioned, John, the Apostle Paul, and their close disciples. And we began to answer seven questions concerning Christ's admonition to the church as we go along. First, we saw who it was addressed to. It was addressed to the messenger who was a representative of the church in Ephesus. And second, we saw who is the one speaking. And that one that was speaking was Jesus, the sovereign Lord who was living and active. And then third, we saw what does 
he know? What does Christ know about the church? And that was found in verses 2 and 3. He knew that they were a church that was that slavishly toiled against doctrinal error. They were toiling against doctrinal error. And they also patiently endured even when they were stretched to their limit in this wicked city. So they were enduring and they were toiling for the sake of Christ. They had works. But then we saw Jesus did not stop with praise. In verses Let's start there and finish up through verse 7. We'll see his transition into explaining the state of the church. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and you will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you do have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father again thank you for your word. We pray that tonight as we look at it that you will help our Help us to understand and help us to heed these words and help us to leave this place transformed by your word. Help us, Lord, not to be hearers and not doers of your word, but help us to be changed by it. And, Lord, help us to understand what you would have us to know. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So what's the state of the church? It's found in that verse 4. Especially, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, we saw that this means the church had left its first love, which most likely is a reference to Christ, Jesus himself. After all, as a believer, what would be the believer's first love? I mean, think about this in order. Well, a believer loves God when they recognize what? They're a sinner and they need a savior. And God has provided that Savior. Once they understand that God has provided that Savior, who becomes their first love? God. And especially Christ Jesus, right? So Christ would be their first love. This abandonment of Christ and the glory of, I guess you could say, the glory of Christ, the resurrected Savior, was most likely, most likely led to not loving others within the church. Ultimately, the church had become a church of rules and orthodoxy without love for Christ and his own. Now the church had lost, now the church had not lost their light-giving ability completely, but it could be argued that not everyone in the church had... Uh, had a fervent love for Christ. That's why he says this. And it applies, the way that this is worded, it appears that it might not be a complete loss for everybody, but it would be a general characteristic for the whole church. The church was, in a sense, stuck in orthodoxy without a proper love for Christ and one another. It's interesting that 1 John talks about this a lot, right? We talked about loving one another and how that comes. Where was John when he wrote 1 John? Ephesus. 
And it's interesting, he doesn't say, he says, go back to when you first started. So a lot of the words that were written in 1 John maybe weren't completely heeded by the church. Do you understand? And you have this whole concept here of losing their first love. You know, a great illustration for this is the city itself of Ephesus. Uh, by God's grace, Brenda and I had the opportunity to go and visit Turkey um, on a trip. And we actually went to all the seven churches of Revelation. Well, they're not there anymore, uh, but we saw the ruins of the city. One of the cities that we got to see was Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a startling place. When you go there, and out of all the places we went, the only one that would compare to it, and we also went over to Greece and saw Philippi and all these other, and Athens, we went to Athens, Greece, and saw these places. The only one that would compare is Athens. But even Athens, in many ways, pales in comparison to Ephesus. Now, you say, well, why? Well, the city of Ephesus is an amazing place. You know why? There's absolutely no modern city there at all. Nowhere close to it. And if and I can't really paint it, and I didn't bring my, uh, my marker, so you're going to have to do it in your mind. You're going to have to see this in your mind. Just y'all all thinking in your mind, you know where the boot of Italy is. You know, the boot of Italy. Okay, then it kind of goes up and comes back down, and that's Greece, another little uh, peninsula for Greece. And then it comes back over and comes down and around, and oh, way over here is Israel. But the back around like this, here's Greece, and here's, right here is Turkey, okay? It's down in the bottom corner of Turkey, down here. And there was a port there, like I mentioned. And that port, the problem was, is that there was a river that ran right down beside the city. And this river would bring stuff down from the mountains. And it literally silted the harbor. And do you know what silt is? It's like a really nasty, green, mucky stuff that comes in and takes over a harbor. And in the process, this stuff comes down. And they had more and more problems over the years of what? Getting into the harbor. So this great harbor town became what? A useless city way down on the bottom, not associated with very much. So the city literally died. Unlike most of the other places that we went on our trip, there was city built on top of city built on top of city. Here, there was nothing built on top of it. Everybody abandoned the city. Why? Because the harbor silted over and it was useless. It's, very, it's a great illustration for what happened to the church. It was a thriving church. It had lots of people, but over time, they had lost their first love for the church, and it was becoming what would call, be called a useless church, a church that God would then threaten, and Christ threatened, to take the lampstand out of, away from you. So therefore, you wouldn't even have the ability to honor and to glorify Christ, the one who should be their first love. Side note on that, though. The church appears, or the early church fathers say, that they appeared to repent, which is a good news. But obviously, it didn't last completely. And over time, the church obviously had to move to a different area. Let's move on to the next question, though. What does Jesus promise? What does Jesus promise? I would suggest this is found in verse 5. 
Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. We talked about this briefly this morning. And repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus promises that he will come in judgment on the church if they don't repent of their sinful condition. Let's look at first at his exhortation to repent. Notice, Jesus calls them to remember where you have fallen. This was a call to reflect back on the early days of the church. He calls them to recognize their fallen state by reflecting back on what they were like before. The church had, that, like I mentioned, a rich history of love of Christ and the saints. But instead, this church had fallen into that deep pit. And he was calling them to remember back to their beginning. Second, Jesus then calls them to repent and do the deeds you first did at first. This exhortation is a call for a decisive change in attitude with its resulting works, as Thomas puts it. Again, listen to this. A decisive, this is a call for a decisive change in attitude with its resulting works. What, is it, what do I mean by that? This call to repentance. What does repentance mean? We've talked about this numerous times, but I think it would be good to reflect on it again briefly. This is a call for a total change in thinking and attitude with respect to Christ and his people. The change in attitude included a newfound commitment to Christ that would result in works like at the beginning of the church's history. The church knew there was a difference in their church. That's why he calls them to remember. Remember back the way it was. Their works and Christ was calling on them to recognize the difference and then change their attitudes to that previous attitude or mindset. I, I had this week, we uh, had a guy, again, a guy on campus. He was preaching repentance over and over and over. Very, I mean, boldly saying, repent, telling the kids that they're out of control, they're wicked sinners, they need to repent and start doing deeds that are good and honorable. Now, at first thought, first listen, you're thinking, wow, that's pretty good. It's calling to repentance. That's wonderful, right? The problem is, is that he, he forgot a step. He forgot a major step. And the step was, it was repentance for moral change without a heart change with respect to Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? I think we have a tendency to do with this with our children all too often. I have a tendency... We all have a tendency to say, look, stop doing this. Repent. Stop doing this and start doing what's right. That makes sense, doesn't it? Stop doing this and start doing what's right. But that's not necessarily genuine repentance. Why? Well, because we can reform morally and start doing right things by doing what? Okay, I vow to start doing it right. But if our heart is not right in respect to who we have offended and what we have done wrong in sight of God and our attitude towards God does not change, then we can morally fix ourselves, right? 
but we will not be right with God. That's why we hear in the Roman Catholics often they talk about penance. Penance would be a prime example of this. Penance would be that thing, okay, well, you feel bad about what you did. Pray so many prayers, right? Do so many actions. You do these things, then you're right. You're okay then. But what does that do? That is a moral change. That is a, okay, I'm going to do this right now and fix things. But that's not the repentance he's talking about here. Who's speaking to them? Christ. When he's calling them to repentance, the known understanding of repentance would be recognize what you have done in sight of God and me. Recognize who you have offended. Change your attitude about why you are doing these things and who you have offended. And turn and commit once again to me, to obey me. We can teach our kids to do right things by discipline. But we cannot change their hearts. We cannot make them want to do it for Christ's honor and Christ's glory. And this is the repentance he's talking about here. What does the church need to help them repent, have a genuine change of heart towards Christ and towards the actions they do? What do they need? Think on this for a second. I don't want you to give me the answer. I want you to think. What is it? If I come to, uh, I'll use Caleb because Andrew's in here. If I come to Caleb and Caleb has done something wrong and I go to Caleb and I say, don't do this. Daddy says not to do this anymore. Or there will be some discipline. What will he hopefully do? He will change, right? His direction will stop doing that or what will happen? He will get a discipline. He'll get a discipline, right? And in the process of getting the discipline, he will learn that to do that deed is what? Wrong. But will he repent? Hmm. Will he repent? The answer is, is he might morally change on the outside, but he might not repent unless something else major happens. What is it that has to happen? A recognition of the one he has offended. He needs to know that it's not just because he offended daddy. It's he's offended the daddy, God. What does he need a fresh glimpse of? God. God needs to open his eyes to see what? That he has offended him. And in the process, then Caleb would have the opportunity to to repent and turn and trust in Christ for his salvation and for his new life and direction. Notice in verse 5, what does he do to provoke that repentance? Look what Jesus does. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds which you did at first. Or else, or else, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. It's a good, fresh glimpse of who? Christ. It's look. Look at Christ. Understand who he is. What he is about. Understand his holiness. Understand that you have offended him. Understand that he is a just 
and holy God. Does that make sense? And therefore, he is calling them to reflect on this. And on top of that, what else, is what else have they been given just recently? Because when they got this letter, they didn't just get that paragraph. They got the whole letter, right? And what was before it? Chapter 1. A fresh glimpse of who? Christ, the warrior messenger who is coming. That's what they need. That's what brings genuine repentance. He says literally here, he uh, gives them a warning. He says, look, I'm coming, and there's going to be an act of judgment that will happen. That act of judgment literally would be that, we will, that I will remove your lampstand out of its place. This is a call to have a high view of Christ and reflect on what your sin is in the light of a holy and just God. Again, these words would be a fresh awareness of Christ that was necessary to help provoke genuine rep repentance. Just a couple of key observations concerning this repentance. First, repentance includes a drastic change in attitude. A drastic change in attitude, right? This drastic change in attitude includes what? A proper understanding of our sin in light of God's glory. Genuine repentance. This is so crucial. If we do a sin and we think, oh, no, such and such is going to see me. And we're not talking God. Somebody's going to find out about this. Oh, I feel horrible about this. I need to stop doing that. Is that genuine repentance? No. I would suggest to you, even if a person comes to a church and they say, oh, I can't go there, or I go there, somebody might see me. If I go there and somebody sees me, so I shouldn't do that, that's not even a genuine repentant heart, is it? A genuine repentant heart is a person that sees their sin in light of what? Or rather, who? God. The Christ who bought us, right? That's so important. How do you view your sin, ladies and gentlemen? How do you view it? I view it. Not always this way, but by God's grace, more often than not, as an offense to my Savior. <laughs> and that's what drives me to genuine repentance. Hopefully it does you too. Again, that preacher from last week just taught moral repentance without an understanding of Christ's atonement and who Christ is. I was sitting there talking to these two atheists, and the two atheists, this is a warning flag, by the way. We were sitting at this table, and two atheists were sitting at the table with us with this preacher afterwards. And as we were sitting there, one of the atheists was talking to me. Or we were talking in this circle here at this little table, and the one atheist says to me, he says, I think... Brother Micah's got it right down to a T. It's perfect. I'm thinking, I, he didn't tell me he was an atheist for a long time. He didn't tell us, he didn't make that announcement. He says, this guy's right on the button. He's got it right on the track. And then there was another atheist sitting here, and the guy's wife was sitting here. Brother Micah's was here. And they were all ganging up on me at this point. They're all saying, yeah, Brother Micah's got it right on the button. It's all, hey, if you're really a Christian, you need to do the actions. 
and do the deeds. If you're really a Christian, you should do the deeds. Well, a certain aspect of that's true, isn't it? But I looked at the guy and said, so what church do you go to? He said, I don't go to church. I'm an atheist. I'm like, an atheist? <laughs> and I looked over at Brother Micah. Or, Why do I call him brother? I shouldn't even call him Brother Micah. It's Micah. <laughs> I look at Micah, and I thought, Micah, do you see that two atheists agree with you? That should scare you. You know, if atheists agree with me, something's wrong with my theology, right? My doctrine must be off. So I begin to talk to this guy, and I start to the cross. And I start talking to him about how sin is what killed the Savior and how sin is what, why Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross. And you know what happened to the atheist? He got very upset. Not angry. Upset. He was crying almost. Very broken by it. At that point, he said, this is what I hate about genuine Christianity. He said, when y'all start talking about this death of the cross and all this stuff and goes on and on, he says, I can't handle that emotionalism. When my heart starts getting like this, I don't want to have emotion. And I'm like, I told him, I said, maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting you of your sin. Don't you want your sin to be forgiven? And he stood up and said, I can't stand any more of this. I'm out of here. And walked away. But the whole time, Mike is sitting there like, like this with his hand over his mouth. This guy never shuts up. I'm just surprised he got his hand over his mouth. My whole point to Michael was is that you're not telling him about Jesus. You're not giving him the cross. You're not giving him the, the whole hope that they have. And it came to bear. He's trying to morally reform people. Not genuine repentance, but morally reform them. I think that it's very important for us to understand that in light of the cross and who Christ is, that's where genuine repentance is found. So, all that said, we need to share the gospel with our children more in our rebukes, huh? We need to share the gospel with them because that's where genuine repentance comes. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 5. Look, in, in, in light of me coming, the one who will take your lampstand out of its place, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks amidst the church, this is who I am. Repent or I will judge. And that's what he does. Notice, though, he does give them this uh, affirmation. He says, yet yeah, this I do not ha do have, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I find it interesting here that Christ makes sure to encourage the believers that just because an at their attitude towards Christ needs to change, their attitudes towards the false teachers should not change is what he implies by this. This is so important. Many people miss this. Please get this, folks. What they do is they look at this little spot in Revelation and they say, oh, look, orthodoxy, doctrine, throw it out. See what it gets you? You become like the church in Ephesus. Which would miss the whole point, huh? Jesus says, look, 
Don't throw out that you are standing for the truth against doctrinal error. But repent and make sure your hearts are right. In a sense, a proper view of Jesus and a proper view of doctrinal error is important. Both are important. This is what Ephesus needed. They needed both a hatred for sinfulness and error as much as a hatefulness for their own wretchedness in light of turning against Christ and not loving him with all their heart, mind, and soul. So in summary, the church in Ephesus hated the sinful behavior of the Nicolaitans, but they also had failed to continue in their sacrificial commitment to Christ and to one another. So Christ calls them to repent. Let's conclude. The sixth question, who is called to listen? Look at verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At first, at first read, that might make you laugh a little bit, huh? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you in here have ears? Okay, was it going without ears? Was that a common thing in that day? Did many people walk around without ears? No. <laughs> he has a point he's making here. And what is it? He's speaking of what? Spiritual hearing. Ears that can understand. Who has ears to hear? Ears to understand. By the way, what does that imply? They had to come from somewhere. Ears to hear are ears that have been given by God. Ears to hear would be those that God has graciously worked. That's why we pray at the beginning of our services. That's why I pray often in my sermons. And you listen before I pray. I pray, Lord, give us what? Understanding. Help us to understand what we hear and then to heed those words. He's saying the same thing. Those that have ears, not literal ears, but spiritual ears, that have been granted graciously by God to have spiritual hearing, listen up and heed these words. In a sense, you could put it, if you're being convicted by the message, take action. If God is working in your heart, do something about it. Turn to Christ and commit your life once anew to him. Trust in him. So who are those that are called to hear? The ones who God has graciously given spiritual ears to hear. And then finally, our last question. Our last question. What does he promise? The end of 7b. He says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The recipients of the promise, the ones, who are they? They are the ones who conquer, who conquers this evil world, the conquerors or the overcomers, the ones who overcome the evil ways by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, these are the repentant believers. This obviously implies or applies to who? All of us. He opens it up, by the way, the way that this is worded. To him who overcomes, it's no longer directed at one specific person. Now it's more of a general. Here's the general promise to the church and to everybody that reads this. Generally, to everyone who is overcoming, 
I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What is this tree of life? When's the last time you heard of the tree of life? Anybody? Genesis, right. Genesis 2.9 and also in 3.22. When sin came into the world, what happened? Man was stopped from eating from the tree of life. The tree of life shows up again. It shows up in Revelation 22, verse 2 and 14. See, sin barred man from eating of this tree of life. But repentant, get this, repentant, overcoming faith in Jesus Christ restores this right or privilege to eat of that tree again. And paradise here looks forward to the abode of God, where God will be both first in the millennium kingdom and then more likely he's looking here to the new heavens and the new earth. Ultimately, what's the promise? Those who have faith in Christ and overcome the evil world by trusting in obedience to the Savior till the end will have the privilege of enjoying the tree of life, enjoying eternal life in the presence of God forever. This is a great promise, isn't it? If we trust in Christ and delight in him till the end of our lives, we will enjoy the blessings of eternal life in God's abode forever. What a great promise. Tonight we have a, a reason to rejoice, don't we? A reason to think on Christ and remember. Let me ask you a question. At any point in your walk with the Lord, uh, with the Lord have you had times where you felt your commitment level to Christ had waned? Have you had points in your life where you thought, well, I'm going about this religious activity, but boy, I don't know if it's because of me thinking on the cross and remembering all that he's done for me. Have you had points like that? Have you ever found yourself just going about church? Coming. Got to be here this morning. Got to be here at a certain time. Doing what I've got to do because I got to do it. I would suggest to you, we all need a fresh glimpse of Jesus at that point, don't we? We need to remember what Christ did for us and who he is and how glorious and how holy he is, don't we? I think that's what this church needed. I think this letter, and as the church fathers report, they did repent. I think this was the perfect letter for them. It was the wake-up call. Look, this can't just be about religion. It can't be just come and let's do this and let's do our roles. I think it's got to be more than that, doesn't it? And you want a good sign or, or uh, revelation of whether or not this is genuine Christianity or a genuine walk with Christ that you're experiencing, look at your Mondays and your Thursdays. Is Christ great for you on those days or is it just tonight and just on Sunday? I don't know about you. 
but we're all vulnerable, aren't we? I think of seminary guys and think, oh, I feel sorry for you at times. Because you can get so into study and you can forget to rejoice in the glories of the Savior. This church and your pastor fall into those traps too. We all need to find our delight in Christ, don't we? Is he your first love tonight? If not, I guess it would be a call from the word to do the same thing. To repent and put your focus back on him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, in light of how holy you are and how perfect you are and how just you are and how righteous you are and how you are an active part of this church, that you're constantly moving and working in this church. I know I speak for some of my brothers and sisters that are struggling and need to be reminded of the cross, need to be reminded of the love of the Savior. Lord, we need that. We're so prone to sin, God. We're so prone to be pharisaical, to do the activities, the religious duties, but not do it with a heart that's in passionate commitment to you. Oh, God, forgive us for this. Lord, we pray that as we take this Lord's Supper that we will once again remember the glory of Christ. Lord, we need you. When we think upon your holiness and we realize that your justice and your righteousness demanded an atonement, a sacrifice, And that sacrifice was Christ, our Savior, who took our sin on him. And the judgment that we deserved, he took. Lord, thank you. Help us, Father, to think on this truth, to not take it half-heartedly tonight. Lord, if there's sin in our hearts, we pray that you will help us to genuinely repent And commit once again to you. Help us to walk and do the deeds fitting that line up with genuine repentance. From this day forward. We thank you for Christ. We pray now that as we examine our hearts that you will help us to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.